The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. So today's scripture reading is from Acts chapter 19, verses 11 through 22. Um, There are Bibles under the chairs, or you can follow along on the screen. Okay. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jews, ex- Jewish exorcists uh, undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. This has been the reading of God's word. You may be seated. I'm Randy. I'm one of the elders here at Doxa. This is the second week of Advent. And so Advent is the season where we we remember, we remember, that Jesus came, light came to darkness. And so we spend the season of Advent, which is the season leading up to Christmas, preparing our hearts to, uh, to receive a fresh and a new, to, to, to open our eyes to see how light came to darkness. But it doesn't just cause us to look uh, back, like we look back and see how he, the, the world was dark and lightness came to dark, but it also causes us to look forward and how like, our, our world is still pretty dark. If you haven't like looked at the news and read a paper in a long time, if people still read those things, like uh, or looked online, like if you haven't looked at the news recently and realized that the world is dark, it's still pretty dark around us. And one day he is coming again. The one who came the first time humbly in a manger is coming again gloriously to make all things new, to make all things that are wrong, to make them right, to wipe this. The Bible says from his beloved. That's us, if you're a believer in Christ, to wipe from our eyes every tear. That's what we are looking forward to as we're preparing our hearts for Christmas, as we're looking forward to that. And if you think about it, if you think about the story of Christmas, and just think about the the humble, quiet way in which Jesus came. That's part of the beauty that Grace was talking about, right? Like Jesus came, God who was enthroned on high, he rejected the glory that was due to him to become a humble, not just a humble man, but to become a peasant, a ba- to come in the form of a baby, a helpless baby in that manger, in that stable. And you think about the quiet way that he was born and then the quiet way that he lived most of his life. Jesus doesn't really come into the scene 
teen in his ministry until he's somewhere around 30 years old. And so from the age of a child, last time we see him before he becomes into his public ministry is somewhere around 12 years old or so. So all those interceding, inter, intervening years, almost 20 years, Jesus would have lived a life of a quiet carpenter in a backwater village called Nazareth. That's where he lived. He lived a very quiet, humble life. And then he breaks into the scene and it becomes semi-famous. I say semi-famous because it wasn't worldwide fame. It was pretty localized fame for several years. And then he's killed. He's died in a very, very humble, very uh, embarrassing, very ignoble death on the cross. And so when you think about that, the way Jesus came, the way that he lived most of his life, right whenever it seems that he's achieving some sort of like real following and fame, that's whenever he is betrayed by one of his own closest uh, disciples and he is killed in a way that was, that was considered a cursed way to die for a Jew. So if you think about that, the, the way that that all happened, it's really shocking what we read about in the book of Acts. That here we're talking about less than 30 years later after Jesus' birth life and death, less than 30 years later, Christianity, the people who consider Jesus as Lord, is not only has not only as it spread through Jesus' homeland, but now it is spreading across the entire Roman Empire. And in just a couple of generations, just a few generations, it would overtake the Roman Empire to the, to the fact that, to the point that the Roman Empire would accept Christianity as its official religion. And now today, Christianity is the largest religion on the face of the earth. And it came from that humble place. Now, how does that happen? It happens because Christianity, at its very core, is a revolutionary movement. Christianity at its very core is a revolutionary movement. It doesn't just spread like some belief or creed. A belief is something that you like, uh, if I convince you something is true, like uh, I've had a pretty good, uh, I've had a pretty good success rate at convincing people that like really good coffee tastes better than the coffee that most of you guys drink. It's okay, whatever, if you buy your coffee in a can and it's pre-ground and all that, it's totally, if you buy it at a convenience store, I have no, like that's no, I have no problem with that, but I think at some point in your life, you need to taste what real coffee tastes like, like well-sourced, freshly roasted, freshly ground, brewed with good water at the right temperature, at the right rate. If you taste it and if you don't like it, that is totally fine, but that's like the way coffee is supposed to taste like. That's, that's, the, that's the, the real flavor that it has. And, and if I convince you of that, that's just one more belief that you can add to all your other beliefs that you have in life. For Dale, some of them are erroneous. He thinks that the Gamecocks are the best team or the team that everybody should pull for. Uh, there's some other things that Dale thinks of that I think are crazy. But, you know, we all have our certain set of beliefs, and as we are convinced of certain things, we just add them to the rest of the beliefs that we believe. Or a creed is something that you may add to the very core of your being, like the, hey, I believe in this and that, but you can believe in something different. But Christianity is not a belief or a creed that we add to our other beliefs or creeds. Christianity at its very core is something that revolutionizes us from the inside out. It changes the whole core and tenor and trajectory of our life. It, it changes the actual fulcrum of our life. The fulcrum is that, that, that place where the, where it's like, if you think about a seesaw, like one, it goes one way or the other. And the fulcrum is the thing that sits in the middle. The fulcrum is what change, uh, what 
governs the direction of our life, and that's what Christianity is. It changes the exact center of our life. It changes everything. At the very core, Christianity is a revolutionary movement that doesn't just change people and changes regions, but it changes people and it changes regions and it changes cities from the inside out. It doesn't apply pressure externally that causes us to change. It it pushes, it puts a new inner change of heart inside a man or inside a woman that causes them to become a different person from before and after. And whenever you see that spread to people, it, it, people to people to people, it changes neighborhoods. It can change workplaces. It can change cities. And it can change entire regions as it changes each person from the inside out. And when it does that, we call that an awakening or revival. An awakening happens on an individual level whenever I, the gospel comes to me and by the power of the Holy Spirit, I begin to see God for who he really is and I begin to see myself for who I really am and then I see that gulf between him and between me and then I see the beauty of Jesus that Grace was talking about that he came and did what I could not do to step in that gap between a holy God and me being a sinful man and he made a way for me to become what I was made to be and that is a child of the most high God. And whenever I see that, it revolutionizes me and changes me from the very beginning. And that's called an awakening because my eyes are opened to see the true state of things. It's an epiphany, a sudden awakening to the true nature of things. And whenever that happens in multiple people, that's called a revival or a or an awakening as people at large in a particular workplace or city or area begin to see who God really is and who they really are. And it changes them and it begins to change the actual city that they live in. And the story of Ephesus that we've been reading about the past couple weeks is a great example of how that happened. Now, the interesting thing is that circumstances did not seem favorable. When Paul and his church planning team shows up in Ephesus, circumstances did not seem favorable for that to be a place for there to be an awakening that happens and it would change the entire city and the entire region. Now, Ephesus was a great metropolitan, large, wealthy city. Not only that, but it was the city that considered itself the keeper or the caretaker of the great temple of Artemis or Diana, which was considered one of the wonders of the world. And the thing was huge and amazing. And it had a great tourism trade that went with people coming to visit this, the temple of Artemis. It was a big deal. It was a, so it was a center of religion. It was a center of wealth. It was a center of culture and a center of power. And Paul shows up and he's just one more guy showing up into this large metropolitan religious center that is a, that everything that they believe as a religion, as a superstitious religion, goes counter to Judaism and it goes counter to Christianity. And Paul and his church planning team show up in Ephesus with only one tool in their belt, and that's the gospel. They don't show up well-funded. They don't show, they're not able to, to plant a church that has an awesome band and lights and smoke and cool uh, 
cool series and uh, cool signs to put up. They didn't have billboards. They didn't have television spots or radio spots. They didn't have anything running on the internet. They didn't have no social media director. They showed up with no relationships that we know of or very few relationships. They show up with no money, no power, no connections. They show up with one tool in their belt, and that is the gospel. And the gospel alone revolutionizes the city of Ephesus. So we're going to look at this morning, how does the gospel, how did the gospel bring awakening and revival to Ephesus? And we're going to see if it can show us how the gospel can bring awakening and revival to us and to our city. We're going to see three things that the events in Ephesus show us. First of all, it shows us the gospel is authoritative. Secondly, the gospel is prevailing. And thirdly, the gospel is transformative. The gospel is authoritative, the gospel is prevailing, and the gospel is transformative. First of all, the gospel is authoritative. Now, once again, Paul and his little team, they arrive in Ephesus and they have no particular advantage. Ephesus is, a, as I said, a large, major metropolitan area that has existed for over 1,000 years by this point. So the city of Ephesus has a very established culture, a very established set of beliefs, a very established religion, a very established uh, as it's very established as a center of commerce. It has seen men and women come and go with all kinds of beliefs because it was a center of a of a trading route. So there are always people passing through from east and west and north and south through the city of Ephesus. So this is not the first time the city of Ephesus has heard a different belief or a different religion or a different point of view. As Paul and his team arrive in Ephesus, from their standpoint, they're just one more group of people that has one more set of beliefs that's different than theirs are. And it has been established over a millennium at this point. Yet, somehow, at this time, when Paul was, he was considered a little man, by the way, the name Paul means little. We think that means that he was probably a man of small stature. We have some other accounts of Paul that says that he was really nothing to look at. Some people think that he would, might have been balding. They think that he might have had some sort of, a, a, some sort of degenerative issue going on in his feet or his hips. That when he talks about the thorn that was in his side, that God, like, so that, that, there was nothing. In fact, he even tells people as he's writing to them, I came to you and there was nothing impressive about me. So Paul wasn't like this great, awesome dude that showed up and you're like, hey, I want to be on his team. He was just another pretty forgettable looking dude, a little dude of small stature. And as he arrives, yet somehow something is different when he and his team arrive in Ephesus. There is some sort of exceptional power and authority behind this little man and his friends. Let's pick up in verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin we think these were probably pieces of cloth that he would have used as he was making tents. Because at this point, he is a bivocational minister. He is making tents probably in the morning. And in the afternoons, he is teaching or preaching in the hall of Tyrannus, which is a hall that they had rented every day. 
So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. First of all, the first way that the gospel is shown as authoritative in the city of Ephesus, a city of uh, a city of wealth, a city of power, a city of uh, established religious beliefs that are against Christianity and against Judaism, when Paul preaches, amazing things begin to happen. The gospel is shown as authoritative through miracles and signs. Now, this has a couple of bearings on us. One is we can look back and we, as we read the gospel that was proclaimed to us from the apostles, apostles that walked with Jesus and the apostle Paul, the truth of the veracity of what they proclaimed about Jesus was shown to be true by the miracles that happened through their hands. Now, we don't often see the same kind of miracles or to the extent that we see in the book of Acts. Now, some of that may be that because the Paul was an apostle of Jesus. God is attesting he, that he is an apostle through the miraculous signs as Paul preaches. But also, I think that one reason that we don't see more miraculous things happen as believers here in the West is because we are too lazy and we're too self-centered and too self-focused to actually see God move in miraculous and powerful ways. God moves in miraculous and powerful ways whenever we proclaim his gospel to people who need to believe or who have not heard it before. God supplies powerful miracles and signs and wonders to, to us as we go out onto mission. I know a couple of stories of people who didn't even believe that God moved in miraculous and powerful ways because they lived here in the States until they went overseas onto a mission trip. And they got over there and they started to preach and started to share the gospel. And amazing, crazy things started to happen that they didn't have a category for here in the States. I think we don't see God show up in more miraculous ways. It's not something that we should chase, by the way. Paul didn't show up to, and have a miracle service. He wasn't selling cloths that he would wipe his sweat on to people and say that this is going to heal you. God moved in powerful, miraculous ways in ways that Paul was not trumping up like some of the people that we see on TV. But he, God was showing authentic, his authentic power and the authentic veracity and truthfulness of the gospel as Paul and his team proclaimed the gospel fearlessly to people who needed to hear it. And if you and I want to see God move in ways like that, then I would encourage us to get on mission in our life. Maybe you've experienced before Maybe it was early on in your Christian walk when you didn't really know better, right? And you would just ask God to move in powerful, miraculous ways around you. You would ask God, hey, this person at work or my family member, God, I really, man, I really need to find out some way to reach them. Would you do something? And something crazy would happen, right? Like they would ask you to pray or you would pray for them. And God would do amazing, miraculous things that you would look back in your in your history and say, man, look what God did in this relationship. Look what he did here. Look what he did here. And it would amaze you. And I think one reason that we don't see that happen more is because we're too caught up in our own lives. Our prayers are too self-focused. God, help me here. God, do like we should be praying those prayers. But our attention is often turned inward and not outward to the people around us who need to hear the gospel. And we go out on mission, he moves in miraculous 
in powerful ways. Now look at this really kind of crazy story that happens in verse beginning of verse 13. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, that's people who cast out demons, undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Now there were seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva who were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them. Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them. So they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And not surprisingly, verse 17, and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. The gospel is shown as authoritative as it overcomes the power of Satan. Now, as we as Americans, and particularly, well, American Christians and just Americans in general, Westerners, we tend to downplay the spiritual, right? It makes us feel kind of weird. I don't know if you're in the same place as I am, but I, I, I read this story and it makes me, like, I'll just be honest, like, it, I feel like this is kind of a weird story, right? Like, these Jewish exorcists are trying to cast out a demon and they use the name of Jesus who they don't believe in and the demon like overpowers them and beats them up. They leave naked and wounded and the whole city of Ephesus hears about it. Like if that happened like in a church service, that would be kind of weird, right? But, but if we believe, if you are here and you're a Christian or maybe you're just considering Christianity but you believe in God and, and sort of this theory of God, if you believe in God, then doesn't that mean that Satan is real as well? And if God is the one who created you, doesn't that mean that Satan is the enemy of your soul? And don't you think it would just be just the sneakiest way for Satan to come after people like us is to convince us that he's either not real or causes us to act like he's not? I heard a minister say one time, your greatest problem is that you believe in God, but you don't believe that you have an enemy of your soul. And so you just kind of play around with this whole thing. You believe in God, but you don't believe there's an enemy of your soul. You don't believe that there's an eternity. You don't like, and functionally, practically, most of us as American Christians don't live like there is an enemy of our soul. That would try to shipwreck our faith, but also would be actively, the Bible describes him as actively closing the ears of the people around us so they could not hear the good news. Think about that. It's not just your neighbor or your friend or your son or your daughter or your or your coworker. It's not just the fact that they're hard-headed. It's not just the fact that they have interests outside of Christianity that... The enemy of their soul is actively seeking to close their ears so they will not hear the good news. So they will not see Jesus as glorious and see their way as, as resulting in eternal damnation and separation from him left to themselves. But the gospel is, what the, is the tool that we have been given to overcome the power of the evil one. It's the gospel believed and proclaimed with the power of the Holy Spirit 
that has the power to tear off the earmuffs that he has put around their ears and to break the stony ground of their hearts that he is, that he is desperately trying to maintain so that they could hear and they could believe and they could see God as the glorious one and Jesus as the one who came and gave his all for them. The gospel is shown as authoritative as it confronts the idols in our hearts. Look at the next thing that happens. And many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those, this is called revival, by the way, when this happens in a church. Look look at saying many of those who were now believers. Now they came after seeing the power of God, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Now, we think a, a piece of silver would be a, somewhere about a day's wage for an average person in the city of Ephesus. So count that up real fast, math majors. 50,000 days worth salary that they came and they burned because they didn't want anybody else to fall into the same trap they had. They didn't say, hey, I just want to get rid of this and so I'm going to sell it, get the money back, and either keep for myself or even get to the church. They said, we'd rather take a loss than to continue to let this be a thing. It began to show the idols. The gospel began to show the idols in their own hearts. And it confronted them and it caused them to say, God, you are God and we place everything that we have at your feet, even if it costs me everything. So here's a question for you this morning. Do you regard the gospel as authoritative? It's sort of the the cultural standard for us today that I'm the king of my life, and I get to decide what I'm going to believe and how much I'm going to believe it. And nobody should be able to impose their beliefs and their, their, their authority upon me whenever it crosses whatever I want to do. But God is God, and I am not, and you are not. That shouldn't be a headline, but it is. To, it's not just an American or a Western thing. That's a headline to every single human heart. God is God. And I am not. I was created for him and not him for me. And so therefore, his word should be and is will be eventually authoritative over me. I am under him and I am under his word. And the question is, do you live like that? Do you believe that? If you don't, then there's one of two things going on in your heart and your life. One is... And maybe you've considered yourself a Christian because you've been in church all your life. But if you do not view God's word, if you do not view him as being authoritative over you, you may not be a Christian. You might carry a Bible and go to church and believe all the right things. But if that inner change in your heart has not happened where you recognize his authority over you. Or you're a Christian and you have forgotten who you are and who he is. And this morning, I pray that it would be a wake-up call to you and to me to remember and to recognize, maybe for the first time, that God is God and I am not. And therefore, his word, his gospel is authoritative over me 
And therefore, I must bow my knee to him and submit to him. And then here's another question for you. Do you share and proclaim the gospel as if it were authoritative? And if it were, there's a a theological term called self-authenticating. The gospel is self-authenticating. It contains authority in itself. And when someone hears it, they don't need to be convinced by another outward a source that it is true, they are convinced in their own souls that it's true. It authenticates itself as being true and authoritative to them and to each of us in our souls. And do you proclaim and share the gospel with the people around you as if it is authoritative and as if it is self-authenticating? The gospel is authoritative. And secondly, the gospel is prevailing. It is prevailing. The gospel doesn't just come to us and confront and confront us. It comes to us and it overcomes us with a greater glory, a greater joy. So, so after after this happens, uh, the people come and bring their uh, magic arts books and they burn them in the sight of all. In verse 23, about that time there rose no little disturbance concerning the way, for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no, and brought no, little bit, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades. So this is that, uh, that tourism trade that I was telling you about. So people would come to the city of Ephesus to see the temple, and they had a, uh, a strong trade, a strong industry in the city of Ephesus of making these little shrines that they would sell to the tourists who were coming to worship Artemis and to see this wonder of the world, this temple that was there. And it was a great business, a great trade they had going on. And he said to them, verse 26, And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all of Asia and the world worship. So he said this. It got everybody in uproar. It caused there to be a riot, you can see, in verses 28 through 34. They, they drag people out. There's a great big riot. There's all kinds of confusion. It looks like it might become like something really, uh, really scary and really terrible. Verse 36, and when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he finally quiets the crowd down. He says, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied... You ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. Verse, 20, verse 37, for you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls, let them bring charges against, uh, let, them, let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly, for we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Now, this isn't very key to understand how 
the gospel, how Paul brought the gospel to the city of Ephesus and how the gospel changes our hearts, how it is prevailing and how it is overcoming. It's interesting that as he begins, uh, Demetrius says, hey, we're in danger of our trade falling in disrepute because Paul is saying that, that gods made with human hands are not gods at all. But then we turn around and when they... Uh, when the clerk is addressing the whole crowd in the middle of the riot, he says, hey, these people, these men who you've gathered, they are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. What this tells us is that Paul didn't so much preach against the idol, the, the particular idol of the city. He preached Christ and said idols made with human hands are not idols, but he preached Christ and let that, the glory of Jesus, the beauty of Jesus, the love that grows in our hearts as we see who he is and what he has done for us, he let that overwhelm them and change their hearts rather than simply coming in and preaching against the idols of the day. Now, this is a problem I think the church has. And uh, oftentimes the, the church in our culture preaches against, right, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, right? Like everybody can tell you what the church in America is against, right? It's the culture war that we see going on in, all, all across the country. And what has that really gotten us as the church? It doesn't get us very much. It gets us some people who will pander to us as a voting block. But it doesn't change hearts. If you ask your coworkers and friends who aren't believers and are kind of against Christianity, why are you against Christianity? They, they'll have a, a dozen reasons, but I guarantee you it will always be you guys are against all these things. One way or another, they'll say, you guys are against all these things, but what are you actually for? That's what they're asking us. We should be known for proclaiming the beauty and glory that is found in the face of Jesus. There are many idols that people need to turn away from, personal idols. There are many sins and evils that people need to turn away from, that I need to turn away from. But the way that it happens is not by us preaching against those things. It's by us preaching a greater thing. Something that would cause us to want to change. Whenever I uh, was talking about coffee, like, <laughs> I was reminded of a story when Jamin started at Doxa. And we were sharing this tiny little closet office. And Jamin comes in, and if you know Jamin, like, he's got to get everything set up. Right, you know, and he's gonna, he's always got a quick, like, it, it was, it was fun. Like, one time we were, we were sitting in this little office, and Jamin said, Hey, I'm gonna run to the store, and he came back with a desk. I know, like, he, like, he said, I'm gonna run to the store. I said, I can't, uh, he's gonna go to the drugstore, and he came back with a desk that had to be put together, and it came together in pieces that were like this big. But we get this, we had to pipe, put it all, this whole desk together. We finally got the desk, and then he brings in a Keurig. Now, if you have a Keurig, I still love you. Dale has a Keurig. I love Dale. There's nothing against Keurigs. It's, it's totally fine. But I, but I had already had in this little closet office my coffee stuff. And, 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 and Jamin brings in his Keurig. He's like, you don't understand. I really need coffee. And I'm like, dude, why would you bring in a Keurig? It's like bringing in a McDonald's into a Five Guys. Like it just doesn't make any sense. I, I already had this here, but I just dropped it there. And as I would make coffee for him, he would have it. All of a sudden, the Keurig started to gather dust, and then it just disappeared one day. I don't know where it went. It, I, didn't have to, <laughs> I didn't have to preach against a Keurig. 
I just had to show him what real coffee tastes like. And the love for real coffee eclipsed everything else in him. That's what to multiply that times a million gabillion. That's what the glory of Jesus does for the human heart. The light shines so bright that you desire to turn away from every other false light. The gospel is prevailing. It's made to shine. And as it shines, as we proclaim it and believe it, it shines in our hearts and it causes us to want to turn away from every other false idol and false God. It overcomes with a greater glory. The gospel expands, it it prevails in in both positive and negative circumstances. We see that here, right? Like as the... Miracles are being worked through Paul and the interaction with the sons of Sceva. Like the gospel goes forth in Ephesus. There's uprising and there's a riot. And the gospel goes forth in the city of Ephesus till it covers the entire region. There's plots against Paul and the Christians in chapter 20. And yet the gospel continues to go forward. The gospel is by its nature prevailing. But it's easy for us as American Christians to get caught up in thinking that Christianity is in decline. That it doesn't really have a chance today's culture that people have progressed beyond it it's like maybe maybe secularism is actually winning and you look around and you see your family members and you see your co-workers and there never seems to be any change going on there and maybe you even see your own life and you see a lack of power a lack of change but that but in the middle of darkness the gospel always ends up prevailing. It is not weak. It is the most powerful tool that we have in our belt. In fact, as believers, it is the only tool we have in our belt. The gospel changes hearts and lives and it will prevail. That is what it does. It prevails in the human heart and it prevails in a dark city and a dark region. And I pray that it would do so here in our city and in our region. We don't want to We don't want to succumb to the temptation to shrink back from the gospel or to try to repackage it like it needs to have a a cooler service or a cooler speaker or a cooler building or a cooler band or a cooler presentation in order to make it palatable to people. The gospel alone is powerful and prevailing in human hearts. And when we try to pretty it up, that's when it gets detracted from. That's when it's less powerful and less potent. Let's herald it louder and let's herald it clearer. Let's herald it over and over and over again. Paul was daily gathering in the hall of Tyrannus and preaching the gospel. Let's proclaim it over and over again and louder and louder and clearer and clearer. Some people will not believe. Some people will mock it, but some people will believe. The gospel will prevail because that's what it does. It is powerful and it is authoritative. It is, it is empowered by the, the Holy Spirit himself to change hearts and change lives. It's not my ingenuity or our creativity that changes hearts and lives. It is the gospel Alone by the power of the Holy Spirit. God does it all and he gets all the credit. It is authoritative and it is prevailing. And lastly and quickly, the gospel is transformative. It's the unique power of the gospel. 
It isn't just a belief that you add to your current beliefs. It's not a code of conduct that you must externally keep. But the gospel contains the power and the ability to actually change a person. It's the only tool that we found that actually changes the human heart. Ephesus, before Paul arrives, it's a wealthy city. It's it's the center of worship of Artemis, of the incredible temple there. It's a center of prostitution and gambling. What do we see after Paul stays there for several years? It says that not only all of Ephesus had heard the gospel, but the entire region. And it had a transformative effect on the people that heard it and believed it. That transformed them and it transformed the very city that they were in. The gospel caused a personal, spontaneous, unforced rejection of sin. Paul didn't have to tell them, hey, you need to come and bring out all your books about the magic arts and let's burn them. The gospel came forth and it caused a spontaneous, personal, uh, unforced, joy-filled rejection of sin. It caused an accepting of the personal cost to follow Jesus. Whenever they burned those books, they gave up a great cost to themselves. But they personally and joyfully accepted the cost to follow Jesus. It caused them to personally and spontaneously and being and unforcedly reject the idols of their hearts. The gospel changed the economics of the city. Notice the, the, what Demetrius was saying to the other people in his trade. He said, look, Paul has come proclaiming this gospel and people are believing it. And it's going to cause us to fall in disrepute among them. It's going to cause us, uh, our very trade of selling these idols to shrivel up. So we need to do something. There are stories of God bringing awakening to cities. There's a, a Wel- the Welsh re- revival back in the early 1900s, around the turn of the century there, it, that it said that the gospel spread across the whole country of Wales, and so many people became believers. It, uh, Wales was a mining country at the time. The, that was the driving force behind the economy. That the, the, the donkeys or the horses that were pulling the carts in the mines no longer understood the commands of their masters because it had changed their vocabulary. Vocabulary. They were no longer leading their mules and their horses by, by commands that included curses. They had to retrain them how to, to, to follow their commands. There are stories of the gospel moving in powerful ways in neighborhoods and regions and cities that changes the economy itself. A lot of people consider that the the economic revolution that happened in Europe coming out of the Dark Ages was because the gospel spread through the Reformation and it caused people to live less selfish lives, to be more committed to their family, to be more committed in honesty to their trade, and to, to save up money instead of spending it on licentious living. And that that, the Reformation, changed even the economy, not just of their cities, but the entire world. Europe became the economic engine of the world, partially because God changed so many, so many people's hearts and the way they approached economics and their trade and their lives. The gospel changes the economics of the city. The gospel also changes the culture of a city. It changes the values and practices of the city. Imagine what happens if the gospel come and comes to a new home. 
Well, there once was brokenness between a husband and a wife, a father and a mother. Once there, there was a man who abused his wife or abused his kids. And all of a sudden, the gospel change comes in and changes his heart. It makes him humble and loving and self-sacrificing to his wife and to his kids. How does that change that home? How does it change that neighborhood? How does it change the schools that the kids are going to and the place where that man works, the place where that woman works? How does it change the generations to come? The gospel is transformative. It changes people's lives. And then it changes cities and regions and generations to come. God did that in Ephesus. It's what he has done throughout the history of Christianity. By the power of the gospel that is authoritative that is uh, prevailing and is transformative at its very nature. And he can and do that in you if that has not happened in you this morning. And he can and will do that in our church, in our community, in our city, in our region. It's the power of the gospel. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.